And so today, we're going to be in John chapter 12. I really enjoy this time of getting to preach because I, I geek out, honestly, just as you go into one thing and it connects to another and another and another. And it's just, it's amazing how God's word just connects. And so one of the things that I really geek out about is nature because of, in Romans 1, verse 19 and 20, which is probably one of my favorite passages because it just, it just shows me how much, how intentional God is with his creation. And so Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And that passage, I remember the first time I got to read that passage, it was actually when we were living together, I was living with Jay and Shana, and I remember I was reading in my room, I, was, I had a little by the Bible app, and they have this, um, I think it's about six-week study, where you start in this passage, and the goal is to get you to see God's hand in creation. And so one of the first challenges of it was to go outside and to like look at nature, and just like look at the trees, the stars, just whatever it was, just go out and look at nature. And I remember the first time when I went out, Outside, after reading this passage, and I stepped on our balcony, I, I kid you not, it felt like a scene in a movie when they have that epiphany and the angels just sing, a, oh, just one of those moments. That's what it, I don't know, I can get the high. But it felt like that of a, just this amazing thing of seeing God's creation. And I start to notice, I was like, man, look how, look at the, how the tree is made. And look out how the birds are singing and how the light is just shining. And I promise it's not a hippie-ish type thing, but it was genuinely seeing God's creation. And it also told me about him. It helped to identify things about him that, as Romans 1, 9, 1, 19 and 20 tells us, that his creation testifies of it. And so one of those things that really stands out is the sun. The sun has a lot of correlation between our understanding of the sun, S-O-N. The first one being obvious for our English, it's sun and sun, even though we have that change of letter in the middle. The second one is how the sun is the center of our universe and how everything rotates around it. Another one that is, is the sun is essential for life, that if we did not have the sun, we would not have life. And another one is how the light of the sun is essential for sight. And so as I see, say each one of those, we can swap that letter of O and U and, and swap them, and they would also mean the same thing for Jesus, that he is the center of our universe. Everything rotates around him. He is essential for life because he sustains life, both spiritually and physically. And he is essential for sight because he is the one who opens our eyes, both spiritually and allows us to still see physically. And as looking at this, there was a quote that I, I found from Origen, and he was an early third century theologian, and he has this amazing quote about the sun that really is going to get at the heart of what we're talking about today. And his quote goes like this. He says, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And that's a profound statement. It's real simple, but it's profound in that the same amount of light and heat from the sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. And in first, second Corinthians chapter two, verses 15 through 16, Paul uses a different wording of aroma. He says that, that we are the aroma of Christ. There's an aroma of us that displays Christ. And for one person, that aroma is unto life. And for another, that aroma is unto death. And so as we look in John, and Jesus is finishing out of his public ministry, we see that the same revelation of Christ, this light, will result in belief for one person and unbelief in another. And we're going to see the means that God does or uses to accomplish that end and see also our responsibility in that equation. And so if you could tw turn with me to John chapter 12, verses 34 through 43, and it'll be up on the screen also. So John 12, starting in verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks 
in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and the light that it reveals to us. So I pray for each of our hearts that you will do the work that only you can do of shining of light. Lord, if you do not reveal yourself in the ways that you call us to live, we would be lost. If you were to leave us in our darkness, we would be lost. If you would not die for us, we would be lost. And so I pray at today's passage, as we see you finishing out your public ministry and the call that you give, I pray that we may have a sense of urgency to be about your business. That we may see the light and believe in the light. Pray that we may be changed. That we may walk as children of light. And we thank you for revealing yourself to us. And we thank you for your word that we are still able to read it and discuss it and preach it. We're just so thankful for you, Lord. And it is in your name that I pray. Amen. So we're picking up in the conversation that Jesus is having with the Jews and some of the Greeks. And so back in John 12, verses 21, 21 and 22 and 23, we see where it begins off where some Greeks come to Philip. Philip goes to Andrew, and then they both go to Jesus. And then we get Jesus beginning this discord about being the Son of Man. It is this hour to be glorified. And then where Tim ended off last week of Jesus speaking of being lifted up. And John tells us this is pertaining to his death, that he will be glorified when he dies. And so we now get to where their last questions and then also Jesus' response. So let's look at verse 34. So verse 34 says, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So the first thing to point out is they said they've heard from the law. And as we've talked about a couple times in John, when he cites the law, it's not just pertaining to the first five books or the Pentateuch, but it's Scripture in its entirety. It's another word of speaking of Scripture. And so there's multiple passages that talk about the everlasting kingdom of the Messiah. But one in particular that I really think stands out is in Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4, which will be on the screen. And so it says in Psalm 89, verse starting in verse 3, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So we see in this is prophetic of what the Messiah was going to be. And so their question of is, as Jesus has made this triumphal entry, he, they believe this is the Christ, but then he says he's supposed to die. And so in their eyes, it's on one end of his kingdom is supposed to be established forever. So who are you? Who is this son of man? Because our Messiah, our Christ is supposed to last forever. And as we're going to see later on in the passage in Isaiah is that they didn't actually read all of Scripture, that they forgot a lot of passages in Isaiah, especially that talk about the Son of Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ, that he will end up dying. And so 
Let's look on now of who is the Son of Man and their use of this phrase. And realizing that this is the last question that they get to ask Jesus. As this, as I've said multiple times, that this is the ending of his public ministry. So after this, John spends a lot of times in the last days of a lot of Jesus' discords and his teachings with the disciples, his arrests, his crucifixion. And so this is the last time we see Jesus speaking to the crowd, the masses, and having these questions, and his also response. So they ask a very good question of who is this Son of Man? And as we've seen over and over, Jesus uses this title mainly as one to describe himself. And we've gone through what does this mean, but just to refresh our memories, there's another passage on the screen of in Daniel speaking of this Son of Man. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so as we have that picture of this title of Son of Man, this is the title that Jesus normally takes on. It's one of his being a king, of his dominion. And they ask of this question, but there's a problem. Because they should know. Jesus has already told them who they are, who he is. But as we see again and again with the Jews, they ask questions to either try to trip Jesus up or make an accusation against him. And what they're getting at they were trying to imply is he's not the Christ because this is what the Christ is supposed to do. But you, the son of man, this is what you say you're supposed to do. These are an opposite. And we're going to see that they are completely wrong in their conclusion. And so now let's look at Jesus's response in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. So Jesus does not answer their question directly in the sense of either dismissing or acknowledging what they said. But he chooses to go beyond the surface of their question and presses towards a deeper reality of their heart. And he addresses their heart when he tells them to walk in the light. And that first phrase that he uses is, the light is among you for a little while. And that's important for us to see the press, the urgency of what Jesus is getting at. Because as he stated before, he was getting ready to be lifted up to die. And so he was physically not going to be there with them for a while or in a little while. And so he uses interesting imagery to help to get this point of cross. And so he says, walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. So in our time, darkness may not seem as daunting or as something that is to be afraid of because we have plenty of lights. When we travel, we have street lights, we have our car lights, in our homes, there's plenty of light. And so When we think about it and we transport and think about what it was for first century Jews who did not have these things, darkness was a very dangerous time for them to travel. So just imagine that we did not have the streetlights that we have and you were walking through the darkness. There's a certain fear because you don't know where you're going because it's hard to see. And there's also a certain fear of what could overtake you because you cannot see it. And so this imagery for them would have made a lot of sense. Because also being in an agrarian culture of them being farmers, they would have known we have to get our work done. When that sun rises, we need to get out and work. When the sun goes down, there's a certain inability that they're going to have. And so this reality of walking in the light before the darkness overtakes you would have made perfect sense for them. That there's only a little, there's only a certain amount of time that they have the light before the darkness comes. And so that asks us the, or the question is presented to us then. What is Jesus getting at here? I know he's not giving traveling advice, or he's not just telling them a simple fact of how to walk in the light and not in the darkness. But as we see also in Romans, that he's using a physical reality to explain a deeper spiritual one. 
And so as we look at these two words of light and darkness, starting first off with light. Light is used often to symbolize truth, goodness, purity, and salvation. So we see this often in scripture that, in, that light is symbolic with these things. And God himself is called the God of light, that there is no shadow of turning in him. But on the other end, darkness is often used to symbolize error, evil, corruption, and death. And so what Jesus is getting at, and what he's explaining to them is, walk in the truth. Walk in life. Walk in the salvation that is before you, because in a short while, he is going to depart. And the darkness, which is error, corruption, evil, and death, will overtake them if they do not walk in this light. And with that understanding of darkness and light, let's go on to verse 36 to see also what he exhorts them to do. So in verse 36, he says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So so I'm going to do something that we normally do in our Bible studies. We look for repeated words and phrases. And so there's one, there's two words in particular. The word while and the word light. And they come together to be while you have the light. And this is the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Of going past their question and getting to the heart is while you have the light. And what that does is tell them that it is going to be gone in a short while. He's pressing on them the urgency to put their faith and trust in him. To believe in him so that they may become sons of light. Because the reality is for every single one of us, there's coming a day when you will die or Christ will come back and there will no longer be an opportunity for repentance. There will no longer be an opportunity to believe in the light. And Jesus is pressing this reality upon them that he is going to be gone soon and they must put their faith and trust in him while they have the time. And that is a common theme throughout scripture that our days are allotted. And we should feel that weight of that, that there's an urgency for us to put our faith and trust in Christ if we do not believe in him. But what about those who have put their faith in him? How about those who are sons of light? There's a good parallel passage that we're going to look at now. And it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 2. And we're going to go through to verse 8. And this is for those who have put their faith in him. So he says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so we see Though it is the opposite of being in the light and not returning to the darkness, the call is the same to both. On one sense, for the one who does not believe, the urgency to believe. And then for the one who does believe, the urgency to remain. The urgency to continue to put their trust in him, to not be taken away by the darkness. And so we see this revelation of Christ, this light of Christ for one is an urgency to believe and for another an urgency to remain. And that is for all of us to remember as we're going to look at the next passage of him departing. And I just really want to press in this reality of our limit, limit on time, of being urgent about what was being revealed in Scripture to us, of not saying tomorrow I'll get it right or tomorrow I'll figure it out. As we read in, our, in the Scripture reading, that Hebrews quotes that passage and reminds us, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There's a real pressing that Jesus is getting at for them to hear this today. And that same thing is for us also 
as we hear his truths revealed in Scripture. So we can go back now to John 12 and see what does Jesus do after saying, of explaining to them to walk in the light. And so that second half of verse 36, it says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. The ending of Jesus' public ministry, it comes to a gloomy ending. They did not believe. We see him departing from them and hiding himself. It reminds me of the picture of a sunset. As that sun begins to set, then the darkness comes. And this is a reminder of Christ leaves from them, that this is judgment upon them, as we're going to see that they did not believe. And we see that their time is up to hear him, to hear him preach to them, hear him call them to believe, his, his time of extending mercy to them. We see that they don't have any more time. And again, that pressing reality of today, of when you hear his word, turn, believe, have faith and trust in him. Do not say tomorrow. And we see this in his action, in that old cliche, that actions speak louder of word, louder than words. Jesus did not say, Go, I'm, I'm leaving, say goodbye, you guys lost your chance. But he just departs and hides himself from them. And just in case we see this ending of Jesus' public ministry and think, well, Jesus was a failure because they did not believe in the masses, they weren't just all falling upon their face. John helps us to see why they did not believe as he brings us through a couple of passages in Isaiah to understand the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah in this particular situation with Jesus. So we're going to look at verse 37 and see. So he says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And let's continue on in 38. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So John starts off by saying that he did many signs, which we've been seeing is a consistent theme, that Jesus will do a sign, he'll preach, they won't believe. And we see this almost on repeat as we've gone through this book of John, this consistent theme of unbelief in his signs. So we see it when he turns water into wine. We see it when he heals a blind man's sight. We see when he raises Lazarus from the dead. All these miraculous and wonderful things to see that they got to see, but yet they did not believe. And this teaches us that miracles are not sufficient. Signs are not sufficient for faith. That if God does not change him, the message of that sign will fall on deaf ears, on blind eyes. And so as I know there's that tension in us that we desire to see miraculous things and then people will really believe. If God does only this miraculous thing, then everyone in the nation will believe. We're just waiting on God to do something like that. And if Jesus can preach with the utmost clarity to them, knowing their very hearts, does miraculous signs that many of us have never seen, why do we then think that that is what's going to help them now? Let us be reminded it's only by God changing their heart that they will believe. And we're going to see this reality in the judgment that he proclaims upon them. So now let's go back into 38. So with these two passages that, I, that John cites from Isaiah, they're both really straightforward. The first one is a little bit easier on us intellectually. The second one is a little bit more troubling in, emotionally. And what, so what I mean by that is they're very clear in what he's getting at. And we're going to look at Isaiah 53 in a moment. And then the second passage from Isaiah 6 is a little bit more difficult emotionally. And so as we're going to start off, I do want to state that beforehand. And so let's look at the passage that John cites from Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. So in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, which I think it should be up on the screen. Or if not, I'll read it to you. So Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So in this prophecy in Isaiah 53, John cites only the first verse, but in context we see that this was prophetic, that the Messiah was to be rejected when he came to the people. And so we see the reason that Jesus was rejected because it was prophesied. This was to fulfill scripture as he tells us in in this passage. That these words were to be fulfilled. And so we see that Jesus was not a failure, but there was purpose behind their unbelief. And it's very straightforward. And the structure of this in John is very similar to us in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 1 through 4, which we won't turn there, but just wanted to cite that passage. Because Moses is getting, he's telling them of the covenant, and he tells them at a point of it that they were not able to because God did not give them the heart and eyes to see, which leads us now into our second passage. So in the first one of Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, it tells us that the Lord's hand has been revealed, the preaching has been heard, and yet they do not believe. And this is characteristic of Jesus' ministry. But then he continues on, starting in verse 39 and 40. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So, as I said before, intellectually we can understand that God is clearly telling us in this passage that He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. But emotionally, I know for many of us, that stirs a lot of questions and doubts, and struggles with that passage, and passages like this. And the natural question that flows out of this is, how can God harden your heart and blind your eyes, yet you are responsible for your blinding and hardened heart? It's a difficult question because, honestly, in Scripture, he does not exactly tell us the hows and the whys. But he tells us that, that this is true, that God is sovereign over all things, yet we are still responsible for our actions, that we are still responsible for our sins, and we still bear the responsibility for the consequences. So I wanted to walk through what does that mean and how we can find comfort in living in that tension before we move into what is the purpose of this hardening, which we're going to see in Romans 11. So the first one I want to state is, We should not try to apologize for God. Many times we will try to sugarcoat this or we will try to make it seem a little bit lighter. It's really not that bad. Really, it's it's like this or we'll use many different ways to kind of apologize for God. We have to live under the weight of what Scripture has revealed. And in that, we recognize that it is not just an allowing. As I know, I see some of that. I understand some of that, and I've heard that before. Of Well, God is just allowing us to be given over to our sin. But we must realize that God has ordained and, and purposed everything before any of us were here. As it tells us in, Jacob, in Romans 9, with Jacob and Esau, before they did anything, he had already determined that he would love one and hate another. And so we see that it's not just an allowance of people to continue in sin, which I do believe is a means that he uses for that end. But we must recognize that even in that allowance, it is his choice to allow somebody to continue on in their sin or to continue on in their hardening. The second part about that is that we must realize that God is not waiting for our decision. He's not waiting for us to say, I believe or I don't believe or I do this or I don't. And then course correcting according to our beliefs or our practices or what we do. He has already planned all of this out. And the third thing is we're going to see in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, where we see these two realities sitting right next to each other in just a beautiful thing that we realize that God's sovereignty and human responsibility can coexist. And we realize that if they did not, then Jesus would not have died. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. It'll be on the screen for yourself. If you'd like to turn there, it'll be in Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 23. And this is in the midst of Peter's preaching to the Jews as he's proclaiming to them about Christ. 
And he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So a couple things to point out in this passage. So Peter tells them clearly that this was according to God's definite plan and his foreknowledge. So this plan for Jesus to be delivered up, which we know that he then dies, is according to the plan of God. But yet, he still says on the other side of that, you crucified him and killed him and gave him over to the hands of lawless men. And so he is telling them that though God has planned this out and decreed this in his foreknowledge, they are responsible for killing and crucifying the Christ. And we must sit in that tension, knowing that we will not fully understand how and why God works this all out. But knowing that these two things are true, that God and his sovereignty can ordain a definite plan and yet we should be responsible for our actions inside of that plan. And so what I'm going to do now is to help to really grasp this tension of living in this tension is appeal to something that it's not the norm and I would not advise at all times, is our experiences. So I'm going to ask you a question that's really simple, but it will make sense as we start to think about it. It's a really simple question of how did you get here? So just think about that for a moment. So the next question I have is, did you make the choice to get dressed and come to church? Thank you, Bubba. <laughs> Thank you, Bubba. So as Bubba, Bubba gets it. And even for the children, I know your parents may have dragged you here, but you still were obedient and listened and got in the car and got here. And I can say with the utmost certainty that God planned for you to be here. And so we see that you all made your choice to get up, to put on your clothes, to drive here, to come to church. But yet God has ordained for you to be here at this time, to hear the preaching, to sing the songs, to be here for whatever purpose that he has. And so you see by your own experience that you were not forced here. You were not overtaken. You were not possessed and got here. But your ability to choose is still inside of God's plan. And that is the way that he has ordained it, that we still make real choices that have real consequences. But yet he has planned it all. Another thing I'll appeal to is, as we look at our lives a lot of times, we'll see things, and even as Shana was sharing her testimony, things she did not realize that from the past that would have an impact on her future. Though she was making her choices, God was moving her in a particular direction. And each of us can see that so many times in our life that things will come at the perfect timing, whether that's a job at the perfect time, of having time off at the perfect time, a relationship, whatever it may be, it comes in a timing that if you had planned it all out, you would not have known. But God knew and planned each of your steps, though you made the choice yourself. And so that is the tension that we should live in, the tension of knowing in our minds, knowing according to Scripture that God has planned this all out but yet we are still responsible for our actions. And this tension that we live in is important, as I said, because we're going to look at Romans to see what is the purpose behind God's hardening of Israel and their rejection of the Messiah. And so I'm going to be in Romans 11, starting in verse 11 through 12. And as many of you know, we went through Romans for pretty much the whole entire book. And it was an interesting study as we came up to this point in verse chapters 9 through 11, because we get to see this masterpiece of theology, how God is orchestrating the unbelief of Israel and the belief of Gentiles, and we see his plan just working out. And so we come to in Romans 11, starting in verse 11 through 12, and then we're going to skip down a couple times also. So Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, 
Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So I remember when we went through this um, recently, I was looking at that past, that part of to make them jealous. And it felt like how when somebody rebounds in another relationship to make the other person jealous of, and I was just like, but nope, that's not how God is doing it. But in a lot of ways, it, it's similar in the sense of by his saving of us, his hardening of Israel so that they would crucify the Messiah resulted in us being able to have salvation of the Messiah being proclaimed, the Messiah coming to the, or Christ being preached to the nations. And so it took their unbelief and their hardening to kill the Messiah so that salvation may be available to us. And so we see that there is purpose in God's hardening of them. And he says it's to make them jealous. And so that as even as Shana was mentioning, I don't think she even realized this, as she saw the belief and the faith in another person, it made her want that same thing. And so we as Gentile Christians, meaning you are not ethnically Jewish, when the Jews see us, it is to compel them, to make them jealous so that they may turn. They may put their faith and trust in the Messiah. And that is a part of why God has hardened them. And so we continue on in verse 25. And Paul says it plainly here. So in Romans 11, verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so we see that a, a, part, a purpose of their hardening is for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. And as we saw in the prior passages, once these two, thing, these two people groups come together, it will be a glorious thing to witness. As Revelation tells us that there's many nations and tongues praising and worshiping at the throne. And this is how God has orchestrated his plan that there must be a hardening upon Israel so that we may come in. And that in the right time, in the fullness of time, when God has ordained it to be so, we will come together and worship him. So we're going to finish in verse 30 and 32. So back in Romans 11. Verse 30 says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so we see this coming full circle. That the hardening that God has, the judgment upon Israel, was that we may come in so that he then may have mercy upon them. And I know it seems like a circle and God is doing all these things of weaving, but we trust in his divine plan that he saw fit. That is the best way to bring in the fullness of his people, both Jew and Gentile. And so as we see their hardening, it was for our sake that he may have mercy upon us. And so we see in God's hardening of them, that is for the purposes of mercy. He's not just trying to hurt them, but is the purpose of mercy. And so let us see that as the heart and the, and the purposes of God as we see this passage of him hardening the hearts of the Jews. So now let's go back into John 12. So John 12, reading in verse 41 and 42. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So we're not going to read it, but if you go back in Isaiah 6 and read that for, um, that first portion where God is on his throne, it is his robe of majesty, and it's this beautiful picture. And so we see John is telling us the one that he was talking to is Isaiah. And I encourage you to go back. It's this beautiful picture of the angels proclaiming holy, holy, holy. So go back and look at that in Isaiah 6. But we're not going to go there today. And so now let's pick up again in 42. So it says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it because they did not want to be put out of the synagogue. So, 
As we saw back when Jesus healed the blind man, and he's before the, the Pharisees, and now their parents, his parents come in, back in John 9, verse 22. What happens during that time is John gives us an aside to help us to understand why they were kind of dodging the question of saying, oh, well, he can answer for himself. And it says that for fear of the Pharisees, because if anybody confessed in Jesus, they were to be put out of the synagogue. And so we see this theme of being put out of the synagogue has been consistent through John. Of The Pharisees have come to this place where they're saying, if you believe in him, if you confess him, you are going to be put out of the synagogue. And so it helps us of knowing what are they getting put out of, but what is a synagogue? And so just a quick and little brief summary. Synagogues are still around today. And basically what they are is basically where Jews congregate. It's similar to a church in the sense of they go for time of prayer, they go for time in the word. And we also see the synagogue is where Jesus stated one of the most famous passages in Isaiah 61, 1 through 12, as we see him proclaim that the salvation that's supposed to come has been fulfilled today. We see also that Paul would consistently go to synagogues when he first entered into the city. And so we see that this synagogue is important to the Jewish culture. So I wanted to read a little passage out of this book. Um, so it's a guy named Alfred Edersheim. And there's a book called Sketches of Jewish Social Life. And it just helps to give understanding of what was going on in the Jewish culture. And so on this topic of the synagogue, which he has something that it really helps to understand what is, what is John getting at when he talks about their fear of being put out. So he says here, he's talking about the Babylonian Talmud. He says, there we are told that the prayer which a man addresses to God has only its proper proper effect if offered in the synagogue. That if an individual accustomed to frequent every day the synagogue misses it for once, God will demand an account of him. That if the eternal finds fewer than ten persons there gathered, his anger is kindled, as it is written in Isaiah 52. So they use Isaiah 52 as a reference to say this is what God is talking about, being put out of the synagogue. And he continues on that if a person has a synagogue in his own town and does not enter it for prayer, he is to be called an evil neighbor and provokes exile alike upon himself and his children, as it is written in Jeremiah 12.4, another citation that they use wrongly. While on the other hand, the practice of early resorting to the synagogue would account for the longevity of people. And so he used that of the Babylon Talmud is, is from an early century, early century Jewish text that they would have written out and they would have explanations of how they were supposed to obey. And it was not according to the Torah, it was an extra biblical text. And in this, these are some of the rules and regulations that they had about the synagogue. And so we see that this would have been something that the, the Jews of Jesus' time would have understood how important the synagogue was to them. And they had fear of being put about being put out of it. And so there's a reality that's here of a fear and of losing their status, of being put out where the Jews gather. And John gives us one more as we finish out in verse 43, the heart of what they are afraid of. So in verse 43, he says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So this phrase that he uses, this wording that he uses, is simple, but yet it is straightforward and it is soul-searching as we ask the question. He says this about the Jews, but then we turn it back to ourselves. Do you love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? And as I was going through this passage it brought up a lot of questions. I'm going to just state the questions and just think about them. But it brought up a lot of questions for us to really think about as we look at this passage. And so the question, first one is, what arena of your life are you afraid of exposing the light of Christ? The second question, what area of your life are you afraid of the light of Christ exposing you? The third one is, what arena of your life are you trying to hide your faith in Christ? And to kind of tie to this and simply put, 
What is your synagogue that you are afraid of being put out of? Because for the Jews, it was this. They did not want to be put out of this time of being with most likely their family. This would have been a custom for them. And for you to be out of this, you would have been seen as an exile. You would have been put off. And so for us, many of that synagogue may for us be our family. We're afraid, afraid to tell them about Christ. We're afraid to confess Jesus before them because we're afraid that they may reject us. We're afraid that they may think that we're weird. We're afraid that they may no longer want to be involved in our lives. For some, it may not be family. It may be work. You're afraid to confess Christ in your workplace because you're fear of losing your job, of being put out literally. You fear that your coworkers may think that you're weird or that the social norms tell us that we're supposed to just allow everyone to just believe what you want to believe, but do not impose upon another. And the third one, another common one, is, is your synagogue the church in the sense of this? Are you afraid of confronting your brother? Are you afraid to confess Christ? Are you afraid of telling somebody that they are wrong for the way that they are living? To expose the light of Christ upon their life? Or do we just listen to gossip? Do we just listen to division and just say, no, it's all fine? Do we desire so much to be loved by man that we do not stand for the glory of God? And as I read this, it's not just you and for myself. I, I know this struggle. I know this struggle of desiring to be loved by men more than loving the glory of God. And I know it in my workplace. I know it in my own heart. And one particular example that just came to my mind as I was reading this of just how the Lord works through his word to overcome this fear. And so I'll tell you guys a little story of, I think it was, I forgot how, how many years ago it was, but some years back, um, the church that we used to go to, we would go out and we would call it um, fishing trips. I know it sounds cheesy, but we would go on fishing trips. It was this time of going like street evangelism. And so we would look for places that were either dead because you can't really go anywhere, so you'll talk to us. Or we would just go downtown Orlando and just talk to people. And so I, I really felt this need of being involved with this. I'm like, all right, I need to overcome my fear. I need to be out and um, proclaim Christ. And it was something I knew I needed to do. And so one time we went to the West Oaks Mall. And if you guys don't know what the West Oaks Mall, it's back over in Orlando, but it is a dead mall. It's almost all the businesses are gone. And so we just said, all right, that's the perfect place to go because we know you're not going to have really much to do. And so we're, we're going there and I get there early. So I get there before everybody and I'm, all right, getting, we're praying, I'm reading the Bible. And so then I'm like, all right, let me talk to somebody before anybody comes. Let me just go by myself. And so the shape of the West Oaks Mall is in a T. And so there's a long corridor that goes into the food court, and there's a long one that just goes all the shopping, layered into a T. And so I want to say for probably about 10 minutes, I paced this way back up and kept going back and forth. Of, all right, I need to talk to somebody. I need to talk to somebody. And I'm wrestling with this in my heart. Of like, all right, what are they going to think about me? Are they going to think I'm weird? This is, this is strange for me to just come up and just speak to somebody about Jesus. Like, it just was in my mind so much. And so I finally came to a point where I stopped. I sat down and I went to Google and I looked up passages about fear and are in, in the Bible. And it brought me to this passage in Psalm 56, which we're all going to read together. And if you guys could all please stand as we finish out. And we're, um, we're going to read together because I think this passage is so important as we realize the reality of fear, that often we can put too much stake in man. And if you guys can please turn there in your Bibles, it won't be on the screen. And so realizing that it is only by the light of Christ that we can overcome this fear. Only if the light of Christ has shown in our hearts will we overcome this. It is only by his grace and mercy. And so Psalm 56 is when David is being persecuted, but it's, it's a beautiful passage for us to realize putting our trust in Christ and not having fear of man as we seek to confront whatever our synagogue is, whatever that thing that you are afraid of being put out of, that thing that you are afraid of, that thing that you love more than you love God. 
So Psalm 56, we're going to read verses 3 and 4 together. And use this passage whenever you feel that fear creeping inside of you. So Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4. Let's read together. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Nope, sorry. That's Psalm 53, verse 3. My apologies. <laughs> Psalm 56, hey, my apologies. It's Psalm 53, wrong numbers. <laughs> Psalm 56, all right, now, now, now we're here. Now it goes back to the point. I was like, that doesn't really make sense. Um, but Psalm 56, verse 3. So it says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, what a fitting passage as we end off. As we see you reveal your light to man. We see that for some are hardened. For some, their hearts are melted. But we thank you that you have melted our hearts. That you have turned our hearts and made them able to trust in you. That you have changed our desires that we may love you. And Lord, we know often in this love of you that we still struggle, that we still go through this process of sanctification. That you are seeking to expose those loves that we have that are greater than you. Those loves that we put on our, our family, our work, the approval of man, whatever it may be, Lord, whatever that love is that we have greater than you, Lord, may you expose it and kill it. And Father, when we are afraid to profess, when we are afraid, afraid to confess you before man, when we were reminded of this passage in the psalm, that when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, the God who I praise, because what can mere man do to me? It is in you that we trust. And it is only by your grace and your mercy that we can even confess you. And we thank you for that, and we praise you for that. Amen.